Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Everyone Has a Name, Holocaust Remembrance Day, for Sunday, May the 4th, 2008. On May the 1st, the world commemorates the genocide of six million Jews in the Holocaust by observing Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. In 1951, Israel's parliament designated the 27th day of Nisan as Holocaust Day. It's a day to remember the Jews who perished and those who heroically resisted. In 1959, the parliament designated Holocaust Day as formal law. And since 1989, the Neset, in cooperation with Yab Vashem, the Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Authority, performs a ceremony called Everyone Has a Name, in which the names of all the Holocaust victims are read aloud. The term genocide has a very specific history. The word was coined by the eccentric and brilliant Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who almost single-handedly thrust the issue of genocide onto the world stage. On October the 16th, 1950, after 17 years of Lemkin's tireless labor, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide was finally ratified by the United Nations. By the time the United States signed 36 years later, on February 11, 1986, 97 nations had already ratified the convention. When Lemkin died of a heart attack at the age of 59 on August the 28th, 1959, he was penniless. But before he died, he broadened the notion of genocide beyond the extermination of six million Jews. Lemkin had nearly completed a magisterial analysis of a long list of historical cases and themes of genocide. He expanded genocide to include the attempted destruction not only of ethnic and religious groups, but also of political ones. He also thought that the term should apply and encompass systematic cultural destruction. Most of us are familiar with the world's major genocides. Armenians, Jews, Cambodia, Iraqi Kurds, Bosnia, Rwanda, Srebrenica, Kosovo, and now Darfur. In his 700-page study called Blood and Soil, Ben Kiernan, the founding director of Yale's Genocide Studies Program, identifies what he calls four telltale characteristics of genocides that have recurred over the last 600 years. Perpetrators of genocide, he says, tend to be preoccupied with utopian or idealized notions of number one, ethno-religious racism, two, cults of antiquity to restore pure and pristine origins, Number three, agricultural idealism and conflict over land. And number four, territorial conquest and expansion, 
No person or people is immune from the horrors of Holocaust, either as a perpetrator or a dissenter. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once observed in his Gulag Archipelago that it would be nice if we could neatly divide the world between the insidiously evil and the obviously good. Instead, wrote Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There can be so-called good, bad people, for example. A Holocaust survivor once described to me how a young Nazi guard secretly gave him a sandwich, and as he did, tears streamed down the cheeks of the soldier. Conversely, there can be bad, good people. In his book, Unspeakable Acts, Ordinary People, The Dynamics of Torture, John Conroy says that we tend to caricature tortures, torturers as sadistic monsters. But there's ample evidence, he says, that most torturers are normal people, that most of us could be the barbarians of our dreams as easily as we could be the victims. Consider, for example, the following example from Christian history. The Spaniards came to America for gold and glory, but they also came for God, to spread the gospel. In a letter to Pope Alexander VI on February 1502, Columbus wrote of his goal in the New World, quote, I hope in our Lord to be able to propagate his holy name and his gospel throughout the universe, end quote. The natives they encountered, however, were deemed pagan and even subhuman, as surely their cannibalism and human sacrifices proved. Oviedo, a 16th century conquistador and historian of the five-volume work Natural History of the West Indies, described the solution to the problem of Indians who wouldn't convert. Quote, God is going to destroy them soon. Satan has now been expelled from the land. His influence has disappeared now that most of the Indians are dead. Who can deny that the use of gunpowder against pagans is the burning of incense to our Lord? End quote. And what are the results of these evangelistic efforts? Todorov estimates that the Spanish conquest of the Americas killed 70 million people by murder, maltreatment such as slavery, and disease, about 90% of the population. And so, in this example, so-called good, good Christians construed the wholesale genocide of the bad Native Americans as a form of piety. Genocides don't have to happen. We are not destined to slaughter our neighbor. But when we reduce people to a singular identity like Jew or gay, it feeds a sense of fatalism, resignation, and a sense of inevitability about violence. Simplistic labels partition people and civilizations into binary oppositions. They ignore the plural ways that people understand themselves and obscure what Amartya Sen calls our diverse diversities. 
In particular, Sen objects to the clash of civilizations thesis made popular by Samuel Huntington. No, we should never concede that civilizations have to clash. Armartya Sen argues against identity violence caused by the illusion of destiny in three ways. First, he appeals to our common humanity. Everyone laughs at weddings, cries at funerals, and worries about their children. More important than any of our external differences, even though these are powerful and important, is our shared humanity. Everyone has a name, a name known and loved by God. Everyone of us, Paul affirmed, is God's offspring, Acts 17, 29. Second, Sen makes the obvious point that all people enjoy what he calls plural identities. To understand a person, we must consider factors of civilization, religion, nationality, class, community, culture, gender, profession, language, politics, morals, family of origin, skin color, and a multitude of other markers. These diverse, diverse differences within a single individual also depend on one's social context, whether the trait is durable over time, to what extent it's relevant, whether it's a factor of constraint or free choice, and on and on. People are complex, and we shouldn't reduce them to a single trait. Finally, Sen urges us to transcend the illusion of destiny and identity violence by what he calls reasoned choice. Instead of living as if some irrational fate destines us to slaughter others who are different, a person needs to make a rational choice about what relative importance to attach to any single trait. Although Sen never explains why rational people succumb to the irrational violence of identity, instead of choosing enlightened self-interest, economic incentives, and geopolitical peace, he reminds us of the obvious, quote, we can do better, end quote. I pray to move to the place described by the Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf in his important book called Exclusion and Embrace. The theme of divine self-donation for the enemies and their reception into the eternal communion of God. Just as God does not abandon the godless to their evil, but gives the divine self for them in order to receive them into divine com communion through atonement, so also should we, whoever our enemies and whoever we may be. And thus, the embrace beyond exclusion the will to give ourselves to others, to welcome them, to readjust our own identities to make space for them, is prior to any judgment about others except that of identifying them in their God-given humanity. 
For further reflections, consider the words of the German pastor Martin Niemöller. Niemöller protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures in person to Hitler. He was eventually arrested and then imprisoned at Sachsenhausen and Dachau. In very famous words, Niemöller once confessed, quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his own enemies. For books this week, I review a book called This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War, by Drew Gilpin Faust, New York, Alfred A. Knopf, 2008, 346 pages. The Civil War meant many things to different people, but to everyone in America at the time, it meant death mass death on an unprecedented and unimaginable scale. About three million Americans fought in the war. Approximately 620,000 of them died. A number, says Drew Gilpin Faust, equal to the total American fatalities in the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. That's a death rate of about 2% of those who fought, which today would equal about 6 million American dead. Over half of the Civil War dead remain unidentified, nor do these combatant deaths include collateral civilian deaths. Drew Gilpin Faust president of Harvard, does not merely quantify this carnage. She explores it from numerous and different angles. To each of her eight chapters, she assigns a single word. In chapter one, dying examines the nature of the so-called good death and shows how people wondered if there could be any meaning, whether political or religious, in so much slaughter. Chapter 2, Killing, was a problem to overcome, since human conscience, religion, reason, and culture all inhibited the idea of taking another's life. But kill they did, given sufficient rationalizations and justifications. Chapter 3 explores burying a half million bodies and for that matter, 1.5 million horses and mules. All this, of course, in primitive conditions, unimaginable in retrospect. Naming the dead shows how more than 50% of the casualties not only lost their lives, but lost, as it were, their names and their identities. Realizing considers the practical impact of the war on non-combatant civilians, and the rites, rituals, and even dress they adopted to channel their grief. The chapter on belief and doubt turns to theodicy. Where the North could at least appeal to vindication and victory, while the Confederate South appealed to notions of abandonment and punishment. Others like Mark Twain, 
Herman Melville and Emily Dickinson invoke secular and tragic irony. The final two chapters on accounting and numbering consider how the nation fulfilled its obligations to the dead by establishing national cemeteries and federal legislation for the Union dead, and in the South, which was ignored and neglected by the federal government, similar efforts by citizen groups. 3,536,000 Union soldiers were eventually disinterred and reburied in national cemeteries. Faust quotes heavily from primary source material like letters, sermons, diaries, newspaper articles, advertisements, death records, gravestones, and the like. She retains their florid language, the bad grammar, the misspellings, and creative expressions. She does an especially good job of noting the roles played by women citizens bereft of their men and black soldiers who fought nobly. Over 50 photographs, a new technology at the time of the Civil War, and illustrations, along with 50 pages of footnotes, complete the book. This Republic of Suffering is not only a work of painstaking historical research and sober philosophic reflection. It's a fitting labor of love that honors the memory of those who died in America's deadliest war. Drew Gilpin Faust, This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War. For poetry this week, excuse me, for film this week, I review a film called The Dialogue, an interview with screenwriter Paul Haggis from the year 2006. After starting as what he calls a quote-unquote complete failure, who survived only because of his supportive parents, writer, director, and now producer Paul Haggis enjoyed many successful years as a television screenwriter. The Canadian then moved to the big screen with two improbable hits, Million Dollar Baby in 2005, and then the very emotional film Crash in 2006, both of which won Oscars for Best Picture. Not bad for a person with no formal training in film. In fact, Paul Haggis is the first and only writer to accomplish that back-to-back feat with successive Best Picture Oscars in two successive years. More recently, he wrote the screenplay for Clint Eastwood's film, Flags of Our Fathers, and then wrote and directed In the Valley of Elah. In this interview dialogue format, Haggis talks about the trajectory of his life and work. Film writers, he says, must write for themselves, from the gut, and not for what they think directors or audiences want to hear. They ought to address questions of the human heart, as opposed to easy answers. Haggis says that when he is anxious and nervous about his characters or his script, then he knows he's in the right place. One of the most pleasant aspects of this interview film 
is Paul Haggis's authentic and self-effacing manner. The Dialogue, an interview with screenwriter Paul Haggis from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, we continue our series of poems and hymns by Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen lived from 1098 to 1179. The title of her poem this week is simply Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit bestowing life unto life, moving in all. You are the root of all creatures, washing away all impurity, scouring guilt and anointing wounds. Thus you are luminous and praiseworthy, life, awakening, and reawakening all that is. Hildegard of Bingen, Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 4th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.